Beautiful. I'm going to read from Jonah chapter 4, the English Standard Version. This is Jonah's anger and God's compassion. But it pleased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would come of the city. But when dawn came upon the next day, now the Lord gave, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came upon the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, Is it better for me to die than to live? But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? morning we are going to finish up Jonah and next Sunday I'll be sharing what we're going to call it vision Sunday and what is our vision our strategy for how we're going to proceed as a church how we're going to reach out and share with others the, the message of Christ so that'll kind of be a special thing next Sunday but this Sunday we're dealing with this angry prophet in chapter 4 you may have heard about um, the, the last week of August when they were evacuating Afghanistan, there had been a suicide bombing that killed, I believe, 13 soldiers and people. Well, they, they, the U.S., the military, blew up a car um, using a um, Hellfire missile, 20-pound Hellfire missile, and it was one they said it had been in order to stop another attack car that had been filled with explosives. And this was in in Kabul, Afghanistan. And so they used a drone to take out this car. You can kind of see that on the screen. Um, But it has come out lately that they made a tragic mistake, that it was not a terrorist. Instead, it was a man named Zamari Ahmadi. And he was driving a white sedan, and uh, he 
was not, they, they had tracked the car to different ISIS locations. Um, well, they just happened to be near where he was going. He was actually picking up water, filling water canisters because they didn't have good water for his family and the people in his, his thing. Um, and he also, he worked for a, an NGO that dealt with malnutrition, a California company that tried to do malnutrition. So basically, he was in charge of helping people grow soybeans and a soybean distribution thing. Um, in the bomb, seven children were killed, total of 10 people, including Ahmadi. At first, the Pentagon disputed, the article came out five or six days ago from the New York Times saying, describing all the details, and they had done the research, they'd talked to witnesses, they had tracked uh, Ahmadi's movements, and so at first the Pentagon argued, no, 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 it was, you know, there were secondary explosions, but I believe on Friday they came out and admitted they, they did make a, a tragic mistake. And I say this not to condemn the people, the military or anything. I, I, I realized that they were trying to stop what they saw could have been a very deadly attack. And um, the difficulty of deciphering that in that situation. I had a, a pastor friend, he was, he was my pastor at one point, who he had been in charge of uh, uh, citing bombs in Vietnam. And so he had been the one that would say where the strikes go and he was haunted by that later in life. And so I say it with compassion that the truth is, I myself, I would not want to have to decide when to, when to do such a strike, when to press the button and, and kill someone um, and, you know, deal with that because you're trying to, to accomplish a, a goal. And that leads me to the point I want to start with this morning, is if you could press a button and rain down destruction, kill a a city full of bad people, right? If you knew these are bad people and you are the one, you could press the button and take them out. Would you do it? Would you be the one that wants to make that decision whether these people are so bad they deserve to die? These people are so bad and they're never going to get any better. There's no hope for them. Let's just, let's get rid of them. What we see in Jonah 4 is Jonah would have pressed the button. He spends this chapter looking over Nineveh and, and wanting it to be destroyed. So God had finally got his prophet to go to Nineveh. We talked about that last week. At first, Jonah had run away when God sent him to the Assyrians in in the city of Nineveh. Um, But, you know, after the whole whale thing, uh, Jonah finally did what God commanded him to do, and he went to the the great city of Nineveh, and he proclaimed the message, and lo and behold, the Ninevites responded. They, They heard the message. They responded better than anyone could ever imagined. They repented and turned away from their evil deeds and and proclaimed that they wanted to follow the right ways. A a message, what any preacher could ever hope for, it had happened more dramatically in Nineveh than anyone else. 
And so how would you expect a servant of God, a man of God, to respond when, when, with such a response? Like every preacher would dream of this kind of response. How, does, how would you expect a prophet to decide, uh, respond? Well, let's look at how, how Jonah responded. It says he was exceedingly displeased and angry. He was sullen and angry that God had mercy upon these people. Now, why is that? That's what we're going to think about today. Why was Jonah so unhappy? And why is he so angry about what's going on? And he begins to pray. Now, first of all, this is good that he prays because he spent a couple chapters not praying to God, right? And that's, you know, it was, so at least he's bringing his anger to God. That's actually not a, a bad first step. But this is what he prays. He says, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful. Ah, there's a new insight here that we haven't gotten before. This is why Jonah ran from God. It wasn't that he was afraid to go preach the message in Nineveh. It's that he was, he was, af he was afraid that God would actually have mercy on the enemy of his people, right? The, the Assyrians were the enemy, and he knew, he knew God's character. He says, God, if I go preach to them, they just might repent, and I didn't want that. That's why I didn't want to come here in the first place. Notice how he's blaming his own disobedience on God himself, on God's mercy. That's fun. Um, and he, in his part, he quotes you may remember we started the worship service with Psalm 103. Jonah, Jonah knew from the scriptures, right? He knew God's grace and mercy. So he, he pretty much quotes Psalm 103, which says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. And so Jonah says, I knew you were like that, God. That's just how you are. Note that Jonah was happy to receive God's grace for himself. But he was a little more stingy when it came to God's grace going to others. Then Jonah um, turns to God and, and says, Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He would rather, he would rather die. And he did nearly die. He nearly drowned. But was miraculously saved by God. He's basically saying, I don't want to live in a world with a God like you in it. He's a little melodramatic, isn't he? Like, oh, Lord, just take my life. I mean, he had stopped running from God. But Jonah still isn't in right relationship with God. His heart is still at a great distance from God's heart. And so the Lord calmly says, Ask, do you do well to be angry? Almost makes you think of Dr. Phil, right? How, how's that anger doing for you? Right? I mean, what a great, is your anger bringing about good in your life? Is this doing something for you, Jonah? Our anger in the moment we feel it feels right, does it not? Like when you're in that moment of anger, it feels so justified. I'm right for the right reasons. Everyone should share my anger. 
Um, and, and it feels like we should express that anger in that moment. Does it, in our culture right now, does it seem like people are expressing anger a lot more often? Um, a lot more raging versus calm deliberation of issues? Um, I, don't, I don't know if we know how to deal with anger. I think we've been taught, let loose your anger. Your anger is justified. I wonder if God would instead say to each of us, do you do well to be angry? James 1.20 says, man's anger does not produce or bring about the righteousness that God is looking for. Man's anger does not produce God's righteousness. So beware. Your anger may feel right in the moment, but it might not be what God is leading you to act upon. So how does, what does Jonah do? He goes out of the city, went to the east, and he makes himself a little temporary shelter, a booth for himself there. And he sits under the shade, and he wants to see what will become of the city. He's going to sit and watch. You know, he's going to find a good vantage point to see it all be blown up. Um, he, you know what he wants? He wants an I told you so moment. Yeah, it, I know you've had those, right? You, you want, I just want them to see the results of what they're, they're doing, right? You want them to, you want to be proved right in all, in all what we do. So God decides to mess with his prophet. He's going to have a little fun with this. And what does he do? He, uh, God sets up in a plant, and maybe the plant grew up all around his booth to make it more shady. And in one day, this plant miraculously sprouts. What a miracle. And, you know, it gives shade to Jonah, and it's a much nicer way to sit and wait for a city to be destroyed. And so... And Jonah's like, oh, this is nice. God must love me. He gave me this plant. And it says Jonah is exceedingly glad because of the plant. Remember how he was exceedingly displeased at, at God's mercy? But now he's exceedingly glad. Well, we sang, sometimes God gives and sometimes God takes away. And so the next day, like I said, God's messing with Jonah. He sends a worm, and that worm somehow takes out the entire plant in one day. So the worm um, eats that plant up, and then God turns up the thermostat. He makes it a super hot day, sun scorching, east wind, and Jones is sitting there. He's getting hotter and hotter, and he's looking at that city. And his anger is building more and more as the day goes on. And finally, he, he yells out to God in prayer, right? He yells out, um, what does he yell out? He's angry again. Um, okay, yeah, well, we're still, um, oh, again, it is better for me to die than to live. A little drama again, yeah. And so God responds to Jonah's anger. They're they're back in the conversation again. And God asks the question, 
Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Note the same type of conversation, same wording. And, and this time Jonah does not back down. Yes, yes, I do well to be angry. <laughs> Have you ever been mad about something and, and later you realize, oh, that was kind of silly, wasn't it? Like, isn't that this case? Like, Jonah's all huffed up, and he's, and he's going to fight for it no matter what. That, and, and it's only then that God brings home the point of the plant and what he's trying to do. And so the Lord says, you pity this plant, a plant that you didn't labor or make grow, a plant that only lasted one day and perished in the night. Should I not have pity on a city full of people? Should I not have compassion on 120,000 persons? So note, note the comparison. The plant, it's just a plant, and these are people. The, the plant only lasted a day. People are made to live forever with God. The, uh, the, that's one plant. You got 120,000 people. Um, the plant, there's no labor involved. But God created and made these people. He, he put effort into them. And, and so all these points, that the distinctions, and yet he's saying, shouldn't I have compassion, pity on the city full of people? Do you really want me to just write them off to destruction that easily? And it notes how this says these people don't know their right from their left. What does that mean? It's talking about how they... they they don't know better. Yes, they've done a lot of evil stuff, but they haven't had the chance to learn what is good and right and true. Unlike the Jewish people, unlike Jonah, who grew up with the word of God in their own language. Right? So they, part of the problem is, is they've never been instructed because no one took the time to do that. And then they also have cattle. <laughs> I, I love how it ends. And, and they also have many cattle. And in fact, we know the cattle repented as well. They wore sackcloth. So, you know, um, and, and God's asking, should I not make some attempt to, to bring around to them, bring them around to good? And that is how Jonah ends. It ends with a question for a point because it's putting God's people, even us today, in Jonah's position, Right? God is asking, what kind of attitude are you going to have towards the people out there? Towards your opposition, towards your enemies, towards your, you know, those who are on a spiritual level, don't know their left hand from the... Are you going to have the same attitude as this prophet? Are you going to keep your distance? Or are you going to join with me in having compassion for people like that? That's why it ends the way it does. I want to contrast Jonah and just remind you that this whole way through Jonah, we are not meant to follow what Jonah does. He's given us more as an example of what not to do. We are given a better example in a similar situation with Abraham. And so there's another city that, that is doing great evil. And it says uh, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, kind of a paired city. And it says the outcry, God says the outcry has come to me of all the evil things that they're doing, and I'm going to investigate and decide whether what to do about it. And so God has a conversation with Abraham. 
a man of faith, a man who knows God. And so Abraham ends up talking with God and advocating that God um, not destroy the city, interceding with God for it. And here's what Abraham says. Let me, do I have this on the screen? Yeah. Abraham says, will you indeed um, sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous people within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. For far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So he challenges God. What if there's even just 50 righteous people in this whole big city? You know, would you... Isn't it wrong to destroy them along with the wicked? And God agrees. He says, you're right. For 50 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. And then Abraham negotiates and gets it down to just for 10 righteous people, he will not destroy the city. Turns out the city was really messed up. There was only one righteous man in his family, and God gets him out. So, um, uh, and then he destroys the city. So it's a different situation, but no... The, the situation of Abraham interceding rather than calling for destruction. A larger picture of what's going on here is there's been a sh- there's a shift in thinking from the ancient mindset towards through the Bible into the New Testament, and that is from corporate judgment to individ to an individual judgment. In the ancient mindset, you were judged as part of your tribe, city or nation, your people group. You are not judged as individuals. So I, I thought of an example maybe that you're familiar with if you know Greek mythology. The, the, uh, the Crete, Cretans had conquered Athens, and they demanded that Athens give up seven young men and seven young women every year as tribute to kind of show how they're, you know, so, and they were fed to the Minotaur. But it, it's the idea that they represented the people. It wasn't the individual judgment. It was you, you're representatives of your people. Well, what God is being able to show as, as the scripture goes on is that he is capable and ready to judge people not as part of their um, nation or people, but individually. Um, the God's of the ancient world could not investigate each person. The Lord God is able to distinguish. And so while Jonah is content to stand at a distance and issue judgment upon a city of people he doesn't know, God knows each and every one of those 120,000 individuals and their cattle. And yes, he saw the evil that they did and the evil that they would yet do. But he also saw that some could be saved. And that is why he had compassion. So it's good news in many ways that we are judged individually. We won't bear the consequences on on an eternal level for the sin of other people, for the evil of others. God will investigate our life. It's still true that all people will face judgment. We will have to answer to God because he gave us life. We have to answer to them how we live that life. So it's an individual. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So notice all. So that each one 
may receive what is due, what he's do, what he's done for the in the body, whether good or evil. So all people will face God's judgment. Each person will answer for their own lives. Now that's good news to a point, but the problem is, is we all fall short. It says in another place, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. We often feel like we are righteous enough because we're nice to those who are nice to us. We love our family. We take in stray kittens. We smile at cute babies. We, we gave up dog fighting. We don't club baby seals anymore, you know. But God's righteousness is more demanding than, than what we can do because God wants to dwell with us and God is perfect in his holiness. And we can't bring our, our corruption into his presence. And so we fall under condemnation. And God could have rightfully looked at this world and pressed the button. But he didn't. And he did what Jonah was not willing to do. He went into our world. He came up close. He came in as one of us. Jesus, the Son of God, came close enough to talk to us to listen to us, to know us. And through Jesus, he would give a way through the judgment. See, this one man would intercede on our behalf. And Jesus would enter this world face up to the evil, the corruption, the injustice, the violence, the lies, the greed. And he gave himself up to the worst that man could do when he died on the cross. And in doing so, he paid the cost of all the sinfulness ever done. And so he freed human beings from God's wrath against our sin, against our evil. And so here's how it works. When we identify with Jesus, when we become one of his, his death counts on our behalf. It says in Romans 6, for we have been united with him in death, And if we are, then we certainly shall be united with him in life and resurrection. So it's as if when he died on the cross, because we're united with him in his metaphysical spiritual union, it's like we were with him, and so we've already died on behalf of the evil and sin that we've committed. And therefore, what that accomplishes is Romans 8.1, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we're united to Christ, and in that way, we're free from the condemnation, united to him. That's God's way for people through the judgment. That's God's answer to this idea that one day we'll have to give an answer for our life, but what if we've messed up? What if we've fallen short? If you're here and you've never connected, if you've never said yes to Jesus, the Son of God, know that in the quiet of your heart, You can speak to him and he can hear you. And you can say, Lord Jesus, I don't know much about you, but I want to know you, and I want the salvation that you have to offer. He is more than ready to include you into his people and begin teaching you new ways. Jesus had compassion for people. He shows us what God's compassion looks like. 
His life showed it in everything he did. And I, I love this one verse. It says, when Jesus saw a crowd, an inconvenient crowd, it says he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for he were like, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Does that not sound a little like they didn't know their left hand from their right? Same idea. How, Jesus had compassion on these people. And his call upon those who are in him, who follow him, is to learn to have that same compassion. One, two of his disciples had trouble learning that. I don't know if you know, James and John were two of his apostles who followed him around everywhere. And one time they came to a city, a, a Samaritan city, that they were trying to set up a place to stay for the night. And the city said, we don't want Jesus here. And James and John came back and told Jesus, and says, should we call down fire from heaven upon them? Like they were, you know, press that button, Jesus, we can do it. Jesus said, no, no, we, we, can, we can go somewhere else. It'll be okay, guys. You know, but we're called to begin to learn to have that same kind of compassion for people who do not know their left hand from their right. People who are like sheep without a shepherd. We're called to be agents of reconciliation. So we, we looked at that verse where it says we each must answer for our life, face the judgment. A little after this, it says this, for Christ's love compels us. Because we've experienced Christ's love in our life, it compels us then to, to do this. We are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and that he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and for them was raised again. We live our life to help others come to know God's grace and love in their lives as well. Remember how Jonah ended? It ended with this question, should I not have pity, compassion on these people? Jesus had a parable that had kind of a similar, it didn't end literally at the question, but there was an implicit question. He told a story to his disciples to try to get them to see a similar dynamic. And it's the story of the prodigal son. You may know this, this parable. It's, it's kind of well known. Um, it's about a younger son who, who takes his father's inheritance and goes to a faraway country and spends it in wild living. He wastes a huge amount of wealth. Realize he messed up. It says he comes to his senses comes back to the father, and the father has compassion on his son and forgives him and reinstates him into the family, right? Well, the father also had an older son. Think Jonah, right? He had an older son. And so the older son is a little ticked off that God showed forgiveness to the younger son who wasted all the inheritance. And so... The, the, the younger son, the father's throwing a party for the younger son, celebration that he's returned. The older son won't come in. He's sitting outside like Jonah. And the father goes out to the older son and they talk. And the, the son says, why didn't you ever throw a party for me? The son wasted all your money. How, how can you forgive him? And the father, this is how this parable ends. It says, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
that's how Jesus ends the parable. You don't know whether the older son went into the party or not. Because we're the older son. Right? God's asking us, will you join me in showing compassion and forgiveness and grace to people? Will you share in my compassion for others? Or are you going to keep your distance from me? Jesus had compassion on the crowds. For he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. We, the question is, will we show that same compassion? Will our hearts become like his heart? Here's some questions just to put in your head. Can I learn to see people the way Jesus does? Can I let go of my anger and resentment at how I've been treated? Can I forgive as I have been forgiven? Can I have compassion for the hurting, the lost, and the sinful of this world? Those are the questions God has for you this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have not given up on us even when we mess up time and again. I thank you that your compassion is extended to me, to all of us here. Father, enable us to learn your compassion for others, to see people the way you see them, and to love them with the heart of love that you have for them. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.